I'm Jez Benton, and this is Route to the Top. I'll be meeting with a whole range of leaders. We'll climb a mountain together and do a video podcast from the summit. <laughs> in this episode, but we're filming this from the, the town I grew up in. And I'm here with Stuart Weber, who's the sporting director of Norwich City Football Club. You started your footballing career, I guess, at Wrexham. Yeah. Famous club in the US now because yes. of Ryan Reynolds and uh, We Are Wrexham and yeah. getting them promoted and all the rest of it. So I'm guessing it was a little bit different when you were there. Yes, it definitely wasn't showbiz. <laughs> definitely wasn't showbiz. But it's always been a special club because it's the only it's one in North f- Wales. Uh, uh, and it's the oldest, the oldest international in the stadium. It's oh, the oldest international stadium, stadium in the world. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's a great it's a great place, but you know, great club, great people. Yeah. Well, it's, this is route to the top. So I, I love the fact that, that uh, you know, Premier League team to the top, but also relegation and promotion and relegation. So that journey from Wrexham to, to Norwich. Yeah. Tell us about it. Yeah, a long one, uh, but exciting one. <laughs> how many years? Well, how, how old were you at Wrexham? So I started at 19. Okay. And I'm now 39. So okay. 20 so years. 20 year journey. Yeah. Yeah, I used to have hair. Um, <laughs> Didn't we all? Yeah, exactly. But no, it, it was it was. I was very lucky, really. I got given an opportunity there to work on the grounds to start with. Yeah. Because uh, I left school at sixteen, and my mum sent me off to a horticultural college because she said you need to do something with your life, just there. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, but I only ever liked football and Formula One. So I was like, all right, how do I get involved in that? So I actually thought oh, I'll be a groundsman. So um, I, easier to get into football than Formula One. Probably then. Probably I wonder then, now. Right? I wonder yeah. now if it might be a bit different with you know engineers and stuff like. That. But then yeah. these guys are super clever with computers, and, and again, that, that's not me. Right. Um, so um, yeah, so I um, went to sort of culture college, and part of that was doing a day a week work experience at Wrexham's training ground. Um, so I did that, and I got offered a job there quite early because uh, I thought I was okay, and the guy had left, and yeah, I started working there full-time on the pitches, just get in really early, make the pitches nice, and then I could stay and watch training then, yeah. which was great, and I'd chat to the first-team manager and the coach and stuff, and just learning, because I was doing my coaching badges at the same time, so it was, um, to be honest, a perfect scenario for me. Single lad, watching football all day, yeah. um, being know, immersed in it. Getting to know, know the players, yeah, getting to see them perform. just the industry and stuff like that. What league were they in? I'm just going to go check the camera, because you know what just happened. No problem. What league um, were Wrexham in at the time? Wrexham at the time, we were in League One. Right. Um, then there was a, you know, a relegation and the club called some real difficult times, but I got the opportunity to move into a full-time coaching position because the manager got sacked, system manager promoted, and he promoted the head of youth. And then this guy called Steve Cooper, who's a Nottingham Forest head coach now, um, he became the head of youth and then I became his assistant. Yeah. Um, and that was my first break into being full-time on the, on the, football, on the football side, which was, which was great. And then after f- around four years of doing that, I went to Liverpool to work in their academy, to head up their academy recruitment, which was, uh, again, an incredible step up. You know, I was only... Was it 14 years ago? So 24, 25-ish. So super young, really. I've yeah. no right to be there, if I'm honest, when I look back. Um, but yeah, took the opportunity and worked hard. And then a guy called Damien Camoli came in as director of football. And there wasn't many around then. This is about 2009, 10. There wasn't many directors of football in England. It's common now. 95% of the clubs would would have one. Right. And then, um, and I really enjoyed the aspects of that job. 
Whereas previously I thought maybe I wanted to be a head coach. Um, having worked with Damien, I thought, okay, maybe this is a job I want to be. And um, and then, uh, so I wanted to work at first team level. Uh, I did four years at Liverpool and that was on the cards. But unfortunately, as things happened, Damien got the sack. Kenny Dalglish, who was a manager at the time, got the sack. Um, and, you know, the club went in a different direction. Kenny Dalglish was a player when I was a kid. Yeah. I remember it well. Another great guy. And um, so, yeah, the opportunity went because the, the club went in a different direction, which was absolutely their, their, their right and it's worked out quite well for them. Um, but I knew I wanted to work at first team, so I knew if I was going to do that, I have to leave Liverpool. So I left to go to QPR, which was a great learning in how bad a culture and environment can be. Um, and I learned a lot of not what to do there and, and took some good lessons from it. Yeah. Um, but then I left there then quite quickly because it just was not for me. And I got the opportunity to go to Wolves as head of recruitment. So I, um, yeah, so I went to Wolves. Um, and then, but I always knew I wanted to be in a decision-making position and, and making the big calls, and I wasn't doing that as a head of recruitment. So um, when the opportunity came up to be a sporting director at Huddersfield, um, I jumped at the opportunity. And I remember the owner, a guy called Dean Hoyle. He's not the owner really now, but he's a self-made millionaire. He came up with a card factory from the back of his van in Huddersfield to selling it for however many hundreds of millions that he sold it for. So local owner, local yeah, club, exactly, passionate yeah. about Loves the, the club, team. Like, yeah. Yeah, fan, yeah. obsessed by the club. Yeah. Um, but he said to me, he goes, uh, if you're any good, um, I'll back you. And if you're shit, I'll sack you. And I was like, perfect. That's brilliant. That's, that's what I want to hear. You know, yeah. I, I don't want it. I don't need it sugarcoated. Yeah. Um, so I went there and, you know, it was a brilliant time because, you know, they'd never had a foreign coach. They have no real foreign players. and. Yeah, we managed to build a team where we were favourites to be relegated and we actually got promoted. Got promoted. How long um, were you there for? Two and a half years. Two and a half years, and, yeah. And um, it was amazing, amazing time because no one expected us to do anything and we did. Yeah, and then, that's um, a great feeling, right? When you're beating all the odds. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, everyone saw it as a miracle. It was seen within the football world as, as a miracle. Um, we knew it wasn't. We knew it was actually a... a because of the good work that was going right. on by a lot of people. But on the outside, it was oh, a miracle. And then, um, and then the opportunity came to Norwich came, and you know people wonder why I left uh, Huddersfield at that time to go in the Premier League to come here, but it's just such a bigger club here, and it was a Cat One Academy, and I looked at Norwich and thought, okay, you can turn this into a big club in terms of the fan base. Um, yeah, that's right. You've got you've got the whole county. The yeah, that's right. Yeah, so my the folks back in the US, Norwich is the only club in the county. In fact, the only professional sports team in the county right yeah, 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 yeah. it doesn't have cricket and rugby and stuff so it gets a lot of following yeah um so yeah that's what i've done and then six years on i'm here yeah here. <laughs> yeah amazing and um and did the same with the with the club because i think the first promotion that norwich got was a little surprise and yeah. as a bit of a surprise for that season i think it was, it was sort of rumor on the street was a kind of the plan was the next season you thought mm -hmm. everything would be lined up in that point yeah. but it but the team really kind of yeah it was kicked in and it was like the perfect storm you know we signed tim crawl um on a free transfer elevated us to a new level we had the emergence of max Ahrens. yeah he's been uh, brilliant. ben godfrey yeah. jamal lewis um then buendia, buendia yeah. timu kenny mclean it was like they all came in as new players effectively that year um, and clicked just, quickly and yeah, I mean, you see Buendia and Pookie playing yeah, together it was, it was, it was like incredible it was yeah. absolutely incredible what they what them guys did together as a group um, and yeah obviously we planned for that but 
you know, for the plan it had to work perfect and we were lucky that that year it pretty much worked. It worked. It worked perfect and yeah, that was a good team. Yeah. That was a very good team. All right, let's get stuck into uh, the kind of leadership side of things. Pause there. Yep. Pick All it right. up. Awesome. Well, uh, I guess I'm going to do a welcome back, Stuart, for those people that are watching. Be <laughs> part like, two. Part two would be like, hold on a second. A moment ago, you were sat on the top of a hill in, in uh, Norfolk, and now you're on Zoom. What happened? So a uh, major faux pas on my part on a technical glitch from a recording standpoint. So part two comes comes via Zoom. Um, and actually, I'm quite pleased it has, because over the past few weeks, few things have happened, few things have changed. And I think we'll, we'll get into that when we start talking a little bit more about the, the football side of things. And also, Stuart's just back from uh, climbing Chimborazo uh, out in Ecuador um, as part of your training towards Everest, which, again, we're going to get into when we start talking about the foundation and the fundraising that you're doing. But when we left off in Norfolk, uh, we were just about to step into the conversation around around leadership, and there's something that you said when we, we when we chatted that stuck me, and I, I wrote it down. You, you said you 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 always knew you wanted the big job, and 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 that big job becoming the, uh, through that journey the sporting director as that role sort of emerged within within football, and your journey from from Wrexham grounds and coaching to. Liverpool to recruiting to Wolves to heading up recruiting, I believe, to sporting director at Huddersfield to sporting director at Norwich. You know, my question for you is: I can see how that technically prepared you for you know the sporting director roles that you've had at two different clubs. But what were the leadership moments, or what were the leadership experiences that you either saw or had that's kind of confirmed that you've always wanted that big job and that you've kind of stepped into it so love love to hear some of your leadership experiences good and bad oh and i think i probably left qpr off the list there as well so i know you had a stint there. Yeah, even now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no i think um yeah, it's obviously a big question there and quite a broad yeah. one but i think i'll, I'll answer it as best I can and then obviously pick away any questions within the answers I suppose but um, I think firstly I always admired people from a very young age who took responsibility for stuff you know whether it's watching people on TV or having to stand up or, you know managers answering questions or prime ministers or whatever chief of police coming on about a murder crime and bang you know sort of admired wow look at this guy or this woman taking responsibility for this Right. This moment, you know, that must feel amazing having that, you know. Um, and probably when you're younger, you think of it as just the positive side of, God, it must be amazing being that guy who's having to deal with all that. Yeah. Not realizing that when you are the guy dealing with that, there, there is obviously some challenges which which come along alongside it. But from a naive point of view, it was like super excited to be like, oh, that's I want to be that guy. I want to be that person stood in front of the camera or a big important meeting so not in a famous way don't get me wrong when i say the camera i don't mean it like in that way but i mean in terms of the guy shouldering responsibility for you know um you know leading a group of people you know and um so i think i knew that quite early i also knew um very early in my working when i'm saying earlier I'm, I'm probably more talking about my working life now that i got super frustrated by not being able to make decisions so being sat further back not being the guy who could um, ultimately have the final say or play a big part in the final say, let's say, because, you know, it's not, I mean, it's ever as easy. It's just down to one person. I think mean, most scenarios... Everybody, are, everybody has a... Pretty, 
you know um but obviously sometimes eventually someone has to make a call but pretty much is a group of people in any work of life making a decision and i thought i want to be in that group because you know i got frustrated with them in my work at various clubs of I can't really get to have a say. And I think I've actually got something which could add value to what we're trying to do here. So uh, so I learned super early in my working life that I need to do that. And it's probably why I ended up being, you know, sporting director at Huddersfield at the age of, oh, I don't know, 39, about 31, which is very young. Yeah. I was younger than probably 30, 40% of the players, let alone the staff. I was probably younger than all of the staff. Um, so I was always in a rush to get into that, uh, to get into that position and like I said, obviously the technically my experience helped a lot but I think what I learned on my journey from you know Rex and like I say all the way through um, is learning about it's about people and it's about when you are in a in a leadership position it's about understanding people uh, empathy is a big word that I've learned to really understand more and, and I think that's helped me becoming a dad becoming naturally older of course more experienced of like how do you become more empathetic because probably 10 years ago I wouldn't have been I would have been yeah I wouldn't have been I wouldn't have shown empathy to a parent because I wasn't one so I was like do you mean you want to be at your kid's birthday there's another piece of work to be done because I had no empathy for that I had no understanding of how important actually a kid's birthday party is to a kid yeah and then you have a kid and you realize oh my god it's the biggest day of the year for them and you sort of realize actually yeah that's that's something that you need to understand so I've learned through experiences, but then probably having them experiences to how can I become even more empathetic towards other situations? Um, and like I say, it's about people. I, I was lucky at, you know, at Wrexham, we worked with a guy called Joey Jones, who won two, excuse me, two European Cups for Liverpool as a player back in the day. And he's still probably the hardest man I've ever met in football, certainly. Um, and he was always like, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. He was always about work ethic. He used to say to players if they were doing a run, don't cut corners because you wouldn't like if they cut your wages, you know, and stuff that's just like real <laughs> yeah, behavioural type of stuff, which at that time it wasn't the buzzwords that it is now about, oh, let's talk about the culture and the behaviour and the values and all the things that we all talk about now in probably every organisation in the world. Back then it was like living it and it was never a buzzword. It was like, that's what it was. But when I look back 20 years, that was somebody there who was displaying all the things that we now talk about. And, and I think it's like your childhood, you, you know, things stick with you. I think it's the same with you when you're impressionable within a young man or young woman working, there's people who stick in your head and I'll use a Joey Jones saying once a day with somebody because it's like, because they're true then as they are now. And I'm sure who he learned them off was probably someone 20, 30 years earlier, probably when he was playing in the seventies. So, you know, it's sort of like these things are, uh, you know, yes, they evolve slightly. Maybe the language around these things, of course, change as, as you know, as society changes. But the fundamental behaviour of it is that. So I think I've waffled a little bit there, as I normally do. As you oh, know. it's great. That is great. Uh, I think in terms of that, wanting to learn a leader was that because I thought, right, I want to be that guy to be shot at. And then secondly, it was like, I think along the way, it's been just such a diverse amount of people I've worked with. Um, you know, and I, and I pride myself on having the ability to communicate with an 82-year-old owner now or a 12-year-old boy in our academy. Um, you know, I think I've got that open-mindedness enough to try and see the world through their eyes. And if I can't see it, 
okay, I've got to ask the questions as what what is your world? Because um, you can't relate to everyone. I can't relate to an 18-year-old guy who's been brought up in South London where stabbings are left, right and centre. You know, right. I, I can't connect around why that world exists. So, but what I can do is ask questions of why does that make you the person you are then? And how do we, you know, how can I learn to deal with you better in a situation compared to maybe someone who went to a private school and had a amazing family life and got a great upbringing. I think it's um, it's trying to treat everyone on their individual merits um, has been a key sort of learning for me because, you know, like I say, I've lived that through seeing people who've had the ability to demonstrate that to me. Um, and I think that's where I picked that up. I've not done a course or anything on that. Yeah. No, and I, I love that the sort of Joey Jones comment of you know it's the stuff now that you could do a course on or that you know people talk about cultural behaviors and there's a bit of a gazillion books written on it but but back then the the the, the probably wasn't and it was you know just them doing what they are doing and and thinking about the words that they use and how that's going to affect the, the culture of the place without even going it's probably going to affect the culture of the place right they're just that conscious yeah. consciousness around the words we use, the behaviors, but it's in, it's really interesting the the things that stick. Um, you gave us a positive one in there. Uh, I work a lot with a ton of leaders who say, hey, you know, half of what I've learned is by watching leaders and going, I never want to lead like that. <laughs> I never want to be like that. You know, so so the the opposite being true as well. So it, any uh, experiences in that space where you're like, yeah, that's not working. I'm gonna when I'm in the shoes, I'm gonna do the opposite. Yeah, I've had yeah lots of that as as, a, as I'm sure we have. But you know, some of them always used to say or would still say to me is you know treat people how you want to be treated yourself. Um, and that's something I've always looked at people in leadership positions. And I feel for them sometimes because I think you've probably been overbroated here. You know, it's probably not your fault that you're now in this position and you're now trying to portray what you think a leader should look like. And I think that's where, in my opinion you know, lots of wannabe leaders maybe fall a little bit is uh, because they have a perception of what it should be um, rather than being authentic and being yourself. And I think there's so many different ways to lead. And I think we ha- as leaders, you have to lead in many different ways because there's yeah. so many different scenarios, you know. So leading here, for example, in this organisation through a pandemic was very, very different to how we'd lead today because through a pandemic, the amount of uncertainty in the whole world was off the scale. So, okay, that leadership would be very different to now where we're back to, dare I say it, normal and bang, we're back to performance, 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 performance. So it's, you know, that it's, it's you know, you have to sort of learn that. But yeah, I think the bad ways, I think, is, is, is when you, you know, I've witnessed people chuck people under the bus publicly in meetings or whatever, you know, not take accountability. I, I struggle a lot with leaders who can't show vulnerability. You know, I think it's a massive weakness if you haven't got if you haven't got the ability to say, you know what, I've got this wrong, um, but this is what I learned through it. I think that's a huge failing because anyone who's ever done everything right, you know, whether you believe in God or not, but even you'd have to argue he hasn't got every decision right. So right. it's like you know because you'll have a perception of well, yeah, we have an earthquake over there for the people in the earthquake. They disagree that was the right thing, wrong, that probably wasn't the right thing for God to do. You know, someone over here might go, yeah, but at least they got it, so it's the right thing for us. So even he hasn't got it all right, um, in my opinion. But um, but yeah, I think it's that the leader who can't show that I need to learn from you, I need to get better. Um, 
is probably I've learned the most from because I, I that turns me off massively. You know, when if I'm being led, if I'm with someone who, you know, my bosses, if it's someone who talks at me like as they've never made a mistake, it turns me off of you're not authentic then, mate, because it's impossible. Yeah. You know, whereas I like the ones, you know, with Dean Hoyle, the owner of Huddersfield, who would ring up and go, Joe, I don't know the answer to this. What do you think? Can you help? You know, and it's like, well, yeah, that's probably why you're a multi-millionaire because you've actually got the ability to know, I actually don't know this bit, but I'm going to ask someone who can help me, you know, or Delia Smith and Michael here, who, you know, you know as well, 82 years old. They will still ask questions yeah. and go, oh, I messed this up this week. But this is what I learned from it. And I, and I think, yeah, I think, and we would have all been around them and seen them many times, you know, and I think it's often an insecurity of, yeah. you know, that mushy, you know, typical male leader sort of, you know, oh, going to rule with an iron fist. It's like, they're the ones I've always thought, I never want to be that guy. Whilst knowing at times, of course, you have to, you have to be that guy sometimes. You have to act. You have to put on the act of, right, I'm in charge here and, you know, I've got to make some tough decisions. But, I, I think most of the time it's trying to lead with, you know. But that's going back to the, the, you didn't use the word context, but that was the word that was in my head. That's That that takes you back to the sort of contextual leadership that you have to do when, you, when you're when you tuned in and you recognize the different situations, COVID versus now is a, is a, is a macro situation, but there are many micro situations, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Delia and Michael versus, you know, a, a, a player or a, or a, yeah. you know, a, a sporting director at another club or whatever it whatever it might be recognizing that those situations are changing and and as long as you are and i wrote down the words that you used you know as long as you're being authentic um in 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 that moment and doing what's required then that's still you being you switching styles as a slightly to deal with those situations but there's some interesting words you just used that um use the word empathy use the word vulnerability authenticity learning and always questioning, you know, so, you know, uh, sort of tenants of of leadership that that you, you are or that you experience that you like. Um, therefore, you're trying to trying to create that. Um, that as a that as a list is a it, it, I would say is a, um, uh, a, a a sort of open set of words it, it, it's like you know because being vulnerable and and being authentic stuff you know some people will say hey i guard against that stuff because it could get me into it could get it can get me into trouble and i put put up the guard and i and i i i'd be somebody who i'm not and all that so what gives you the comfort to to be like that because there has to be a level of comfort and 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 maybe confidence to 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 be like that versus you know stick up the the barriers the mask and 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 be something that you're not yeah i think i think it comes from i i don't care i sort of started with nothing and going back to nothing doesn't scare me okay because it's like well i was happy with nothing so i think i I live in that and i don't when i say nothing i don't mean my wife and and family uh, yeah by that i mean you know uh status career uh financial whatever so it's more a case of like i think well you either take me for me or you don't right and I, i'm okay with that because if i'm not for you i back myself that i'm going to get a job somewhere else and if i don't well the worst is i had what i had before and i'm still happy so that that's that's all right 
So I think it comes from that. Um, I'm very honest with my employee people who employ me. You know, whether it's Dean Hoyle at Huddersfield or or Delia and Michael here or whoever my next employees will be, I have a very honest conversation before we sign the contract of this is me. This is what I'm good at. This is what I'm not good at. This is what I'll do. Um, these are the type of mistakes we make. I'll always own them, though. Um, I'll always be brutally honest. Um, I will call your baby ugly at times. If all of these things aren't for you, please, I'm not your guy. We'll end up falling out. If right. you want Mr. Corporate, Mr. Politically correct, doesn't, you know, unfortunately, I do drop the old swear word in too many times and, and stuff. I'm trying to improve on that, didn't I am, I, I am. But it's a bit like, that's me. If you want someone who looks like this, go and get him because you can't turn me into him. Um, and I think that comes from that comfort as well is I know I'm super honest from the start with the people employing me. I lay myself bare of this is me. This is my personality. Um, this is how I react in this situation. This is how I react in this situation. This type of mistake I'll make. Um, if that's not for you, great. Not, not a problem. Uh, but I'd rather be honest now than you think you're getting someone. You know, that's why any interview I've done or, or like job interview and stuff, you know, I've always just been super honest. And there's been times where I haven't got jobs. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's okay. Because I'd rather that than prepare just to get your job. And then six months down the line, I'm unhappy because I'm having to be something I'm not, or they're unhappy because it's like, well, I mean, you didn't portray that when we employed you. So uh, I think the comfort a lot comes from that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, like I say, not worrying about what I don't have. Yeah, I love that way of managing. I, the word I wrote down was risk. I love the way in which you can sort of mentally manage risk um, yeah. of of being yourself and being comfortable in that and say well you know what what's what's what, what's the worst that could happen or you know if it doesn't work out or do something else or or whatever but you flip that thought to the you know sort of here's who i am you know uh here's what i'll do here's how i'll be within the place um when you joined norwich six years ago obviously delia and michael and whoever else was in that group of people that that hired you heard that and said we we like that that's what we need at, that's what we need here now or they could have said no we don't like that it's not what we need we'll go look at something else but they clearly said no that's, that that's what we need here right now um yeah. let's bring Stuart in so for the last 6 years you you've been at you've been at Norwich um how has and this is we're, we're stepping from sort of your leadership into kind of uh what's changed at Norwich over the last six years and how have you impacted that through leadership? And you can come at that from a kind of culture standpoint or from a behavior standpoint or a, just, just a general club. Like as you, as you stepped in, you think about that six year journey and they said, yeah, we're going to, we're going to hire this guy and we like what he said, you know, what have you been able to do and and how do you see the, the club has progressed from your, there's, you know, big club, lot can be done here. Very excited to step into that role. Just, Mm. sort of journey from a, how things have changed, how it's gone, um, the culture of the place and how that's developed. Yeah, I think I mean, we've developed a lot. You know, we, we I felt, uh, again, I might be wrong, but I felt when we turned up, it was a, a bit of a culture of, um, of fear. It was definitely wasn't a great togetherness. So, for example, people from the business who are based at the stadium and, and the training centre, which is where, where I'm based, there'd be very little interaction between the two sites. Um, and in fact, when people went from one site to the other, they weren't, excuse me, particularly made to feel uh, welcome. 
And, you know, I can't stand that. I, I feel, I don't feel good if I go into a place where you feel like, I'm not really welcome here. You know, that that's uh, one of my big sort of don't likes in the world is, you know, from remembering as a school kid or whatever, going into a pile, like, oh, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable here. So I like to make places feel comfortable, welcoming, warm. Uh, and I think if you come to our training ground, it should be an amazing experience for you, whether you're a staff member who comes every day or whether you're someone who comes every so often or whether you're an outside visitor, you should go away from here going, you know, everyone said hello to me, everyone used manners. Um, people made me feel comfortable. People made me um, feel, feel like I was safe. I could go through that gate and the world can't get me. Whatever's going on in my life, horrific things at home, whatever, 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 you know, my bloody mum's dying or this is happening. You know what? I go into that safe space and I'm with a group of people who all care about each other, all work incredibly hard, demand a lot of each other. But fundamentally, I feel safe. I can go and sit and have my lunch with any one staff member that works here and be able to have, sit there and have a conversation and know that I'm not going to be judged and that there's someone there to listen to me. And, and I think, and they have a enthusiasm and a laugh. Do you know what I mean? It's important to me that I like hearing people laugh um, and enjoy themselves because often in our industry, you lose more than you win. You know, you get bogged down with so many different things. There's yeah. so much outside pressure that it's like you've got to have an environment where people can come and go, you know what? We actually can mess around for 10 minutes and it's all right. It's okay. You know, so that was the thing where when I first came in, I was like, well, this place isn't me. It's too stuffy. It's too formal. Um, it's two people didn't really know, in my opinion, how to behave. You know, it wasn't, it felt like, okay, are we nice to each other? Are we not nice to each other? Do we treat the groundsman the same as the head coach or not? It's like, well, yeah, no, absolutely we do. Because when we're here, we're all the same. Yeah, bits of hierarchy, of course, in every time. But ultimately, we're all here to achieve the same goal. So it's like, well, let's treat each other like like that as opposed to oh them over there you you can only have lunch at this time because you're you you know you're not important it's like no, no no let's let's get rid of that but then what to help harbor that was then okay that's all well and good but probably the physical surroundings of the environment yeah. didn't lend itself to that so it's one thing the behavior being right yeah trying to explain the behaviors but still the physical nature of the facility in my opinion contradicted a lot of that because it's, it's, it's huge. What we call physical artifacts. You know, yeah. you, you walk into, we do it all the time, right? We walk into a into somebody's headquarters and, you know, they they then the the organization has some kind of statement in the lobby or whatever that says, you know, we're we're innovative and we're customer focused and we're this, that, and the other. And you and you walk in and it's sort of a gray windowless hellhole. You go like, well. <laughs> How do you get? How do you be innovative in this? Or you know the way in which you get treated at the desk didn't feel like some kind of high level of customer experience. So, so the, the physical artifacts of of a place is is massive um, when it comes to culture and culture change because that's what people see and 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 experience as well as like you said the behaviors, the interaction. So, so what did you do? What how, how did change? How did you change things? Well, first thing, it was like, right, okay, what can we... So one of our values is growth. So I was like, right, how do we demonstrate growth here so that people, our staff, our players can actually feel we're growing, if that's the word. 
Um, so we were like, we've got to, we've got to do something. So we actually drew Arsenal in the F, in the League Cup away, um, and our training pitches had no floodlights. So in the cup game, we never budget for that. So the Arsenal game earned us around 300 grand. So I actually said to the board, can we have that 300 grand, please, to put floodlights in? So when the players come back in, you know, six weeks or whatever, after the summer, they can actually physically see something different and which demonstrates growth. And then we did a lot of, uh, we went to America and we took some inspiration from NFL of just like, how can we do best with what we got in terms of the facility, in terms of bringing you know, pictures to life and colour to life and making it in place where you walk in and play, oh, oh, okay, this is this is different. So that was almost the start of the sort of mantra when we had, you know, sort of no money and we were sort of trying to a bit of perfume on a pig, really. But it was like, right, no, let's make some little changes because that can maybe change the mentality to then lead to bigger change. Yeah. And that's what we did. And, you know, we ended up with what we've got now, which is, you know, by the time the swimming pool was finished in three months, it's, you know, a world-class training, training venue. Yeah. Um, you know, where every player or staff member, whoever comes here now from opposition or with new signings, walk in and it's like, wow, I wasn't expecting this. This is, yeah, this, this is unbelievable. You know, and that, that's where we've got to. But, that, but that's come again. It comes back to leadership. That's been, you know, the swimming pool that we've designed has been designed by our head of sports science, head of medical, not by me. I'm there to facilitate, to drive, to try and get decisions through above. But ultimately, it's like, guys, that's your workspace. You know what best looks like in that area. I don't. I can't tell you what the best swimming pool in the world should look like. I don't. I can't even swim. So it's like using experts and and you know encouraging them then to be ambitious of no, if we're going to do this, let's do this to the best of our ability. So if we have to cut back on budget along the way, we will. But let's aim high, and it's trying to again trying to inspire the staff if you like involved in these projects to go. No, no, come. On, what does you go and tell me what find out what the best looks like. Bring it back here. And then we'll work together to try and actually make it become a reality yeah. and drive it forward. And I'll deal with the crap. Don't worry about that. I'll deal with the rubbish, the financial side and stuff. You just come with more ideas and more enthusiasm and more creativity about, right, we've got this space. What's, how can we best maximize this? Um, and I think it's that's what we've tried to do here in the, in the six years. And, you know, and that's the same with being innovative around technologies or around um, staffing structures. You know, we've got a data and innovation team now of eight people. You know, we've got data scientists, data engineers. You know, I didn't even know what data was six years ago. It's, but it's like trying yeah. to be open as a leader to, okay, there's this data. I need to understand it better. I'm never going to be an expert in it. Right, I need to employ some experts who can drive that forward. I've got a vision of what I think data can do to help us get better. I can't implement that vision. That's it's beyond me. I'm not a mathematician. I'm not some guy who can do x and y coordinates and come out with something which says do this. <laughs> yeah, but you're you're a guy who can, you're a guy who can take the outputs and the and the story and help make decisions to move that forward. Exactly, exactly. But then so I employ someone who does know what people who can build these systems look like. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's it's been great from from that point of view. And I think what we've tried to do here. It's constantly show that we're trying to grow every year, step by step by step by step, whether that's a good year on the pitch, whether it's a bad year on the pitch. It's like, no, no, we still grow as, as a club. And I think that's the what I take greatest pride from. Yeah. And I'm sure the guys in the business would say the same is, you know, if you walk into our football club on the day I leave, whenever that's going to be in the, in the next six, seven months to the day I joined. And if you had like a little camcorder and went around everywhere, you'd not think it's the same place. Right. You know, and how staff have developed and 
and stuff as well. You'd be like, that's not the same staff member. I don't know this, but he or she, they've now developed. They've gone from a junior into a senior leadership position where they're now making decisions. And I think it's that's the the biggest impact is it's you know transformed ultimately what we look like. Loads of mistakes along the way, loads of learnings. Absolutely, of course there is. But you know, ultimately everything we've done is to try and help grow the organization and make us better. And you know, when you don't have the most money like we don't have, then you know, we have to take more risks and we have to work harder. Well, unfortunately, along the way with that, you then get some some of the risks don't work out. Um, yeah. but that's all right. I think again, if everyone's on the same page to understand risk versus reward, then it's understand that we're trying this. And it might not work, but the worst is going to be this. Say so what if it wins or if it does well, oh, the gain is massive. Let's try it. Um, that, that's the same attitude that you have about yourself as well. Just what you just said then about the club and the growth is also, you know, if it works great, if it doesn't, you know, it, it, we're trying, we're doing something. That that's the same attitude that you personally have when we were talking earlier about, you know some of those tenants and when you when you meet with owners and say here's here's what you're getting um so i, I can see how those two things are kind of partnering well with each other you know how you have influenced all, all of that and and growth being you know part of the legacy over the last six years or the journey over the last six years for, for you and for the club how about um uh you say in this business we you, you lose more than you, you you win uh and i guess that depends on the on the on the year uh you and the club i think this is a, a double question around resilience um and so what i mean by this is i you you personally uh you know because you're in the press and stuff like that you can you can read something uh, in fact i read something a couple of days ago Stuart's a genius, brilliant in the transfer market. What a what a great squad we've got! And out the gate with you know two wins and a big goal scoring draw that was very close to being a win. Like so, it's like that's all great, right? <laughs> For the last few weeks and and great stuff. And then you can you know you probably look back six months and could find find the exact same people saying the opposite about you. <laughs> you know, and then and so that's you. But then you probably find the same things about the team or the or the club or, or, or whatever. So how do you build, or how have you sort of built a level of resilience in yourself and within the club to what I would call the roller coaster of mm. of, of of that? Because that's that, that that's very unique and uh, as a you know sporting director or of a CEO of an organization, right? That that turn on a dime. Is 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 very unique, I think, to sport because either you're yeah. winning or you're losing, um, or you're drawing, and and that's like losing. So, yeah, how do you manage that? Yeah, I mean, on a personal level, um, it's just got a lot easier with experience. I mean, you have to go through it to know what it feels like to be overly praised um, and to be overly sort of criticised. And I think where I've got to is learning that. You know, the reality is you're always somewhere probably in between. You know, you're never a genius and you're never as bad as what people make out. And I think how I've become resilient in terms of the media stuff, I don't read it. Um, and I've stopped reading it probably four or five years ago because it's like, actually, this isn't helping me. Help. Um, you know, because, you know, you've got people writing about you that you've never met, you don't know. And it comes back to the empathy point. I've got no empathy because 
they've actually got no idea what your job is. It's a bit like me writing about a brain surgeon and going, can't believe that brain surgeon got it wrong and, you know, killed that poor child. Duh, 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 duh. He's an idiot. Duh, duh, duh. It's a bit like, hey, have you ever picked up a scalpel, let alone, you know, and it's like, um, whereas that's what it's like in football. I'm not, I'm not comparing us to brain surgeons, don't get me wrong, but what I am saying is football is a sport, or most sports, but um, where sort of everyone is entitled to an opinion. And that's a great thing about sport. And that shouldn't that shouldn't go away. But what comes with that is in the day and age we are now, people can write on social media, they can write in uh, to local newspapers or whatever, and people start to take their opinion as fact. And, you know, Dave from down the road who writes in the local paper can be saying that I am absolutely brilliant. This time the other people go, oh, Dave, who writes in the paper, he must know. And it's like, he hasn't got a clue. Yeah. That's not his fault. It's just his opinion, but everyone takes it as fact because Dave, who writes in the paper, he must be right. So I think it's um, it's learning to ignore it. And I think it's learning to have a group of people around you, which is very small, that you can get very honest feedback right. from. Yeah. So you're not and avoiding that, you're not avoiding the feedback. You're just not reading no. the press. You're, exactly. you're getting it's from like, a trusted group of people who actually know. Exactly. People who may be, you know, mentors who've done the job. You know, yeah. who, who you can say, listen, I did this and this, this is the outcome. You know, who can critique you and go, this isn't going to be a nice conversation for you, but you need to listen. That was a bad decision. And this is why it's a bad decision. Or likewise, you do something and this, and they go, ah, you know what? That's, that was the right call in that moment. It yeah. just didn't work out. Yeah. You know, it didn't work out. And it's like, you know, so I think it's having them people who can, again, show empathy, maybe been there, done it, not necessarily in the same industry, because, you know, I'll speak to lots of people in other business, but people who did, because often, we're, again, we're dealing with people. So a lot of our decisions we make is, again, it's to do with a person or, or a group of people. So, you know, it's not all about, oh, if you've only been a sporting director, you understand. Absolutely not. You know, I'll talk to other people who lead groups of people and go, I said this. Oh, yeah, no, that, 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 that wouldn't have worked well in our industry either. You probably shouldn't have said that or you shouldn't have framed it that way or whatever. Oh, okay. Um, so I think it's it for me, it's finding that. I think the organization resilience is is a lot tougher because you're dealing with, or in my opinion, is is we're dealing with we have a lot of young staff from the age of 16, let's say, when they can come in as scholars or footballers, or they can come in as interns. Um, or 18, they can start working within the club shop or or whatever. Right away through to people who've been here 40 years. We've seen it all, good times, bad times. So you're trying to take a whole generational difference in of, of people on a journey with you. And um, I think that's really hard because I think to say to an 18-year-old now, why are you on social media? Why are you looking at that rubbish? Yeah. I think if you just say that, they look at you like you're an alien. Yeah. And they're right because that's their world. Their world. I think if I was 18 again, I'd be all over it. And I'm just so grateful that it wasn't around when um, when I was a young guy because, you know, I would have for sure tweeted stuff about Man United players and, you know, being a Leeds fan and you know, all this sort of stuff, which people could now screenshot and go, look, look what he wrote 15 years ago. And they'd be like, well, yeah, but I was a bit of a knobhead then. You know, I'm not now. And I think it's um, so to get these guys to understand, oh, yeah, just ignore it. I think I'm trying to understand more. That's like a foreign language. And what do you mean just ignore it? Why am I going to ignore it? It's this guy's tweeting about me or this woman's tweeting or whatever. It's their world. Um, And it's, you know, it's just, it's a world I'm glad I sort of just missed out on really. But um, 
but then I think it's super tough to build that resilience um, together because you'll you know you'll meet a fifty year old woman who works in accounts who will go I don't even know what Twitter is I've no idea um, I don't know what they're saying on Twitter about the club where do you find that um, so, but then you got sat next to her twenty two year old who's going oh my god look what they're writing about us you know Wagner or whatever us and, and this that and the other so I think it's it's tough but I think all you can continue to do is build that environment of understanding of okay yeah we know some of young guys will get a bit more caught up in that both in a positive and a negative way you know when things are going well they'll be maybe a bit too high and then when things are low a bit too low and how can we you know understand that you know we've been through that that journey as well and and you know I remember we had Eddie Jones here uh came into the talk the ex-England rugby coach he's now Australian rugby coach and he he said to the players said, who's the oldest in the room it was to the players and you know whichever one put his hand up and he said who's the youngest and it was a young guy actually called Johnny Rose just scored three goals in three games for us yeah and he said um he said to the older player he says oh what do you know about him and the older player is like what what, what do you mean he goes well, where's he from what's his background what's he into and the older players uh, I don't know then he said to Johnny he goes what do you know about him and uh, he, Johnny couldn't answer and he goes what's his wife's name and this is where Johnny's quite smart he goes Mrs. Mrs. Gibson um, <laughs> but the point he was making is he goes you've yeah. got to remember guys, you're 15 years apart you need to somehow try and bridge that and get to know each other and understand that he acts like that because he's 18 yeah, you act like that 44 yeah. he's out clubbing when you're 18, with three kids yeah but when you're yeah. Exactly. He's coming in in the morning in a mood because his kid's being bullied at school. Yeah. He's coming in the mood in the morning because, I don't know, someone's rejecting him on Tinder or whatever. And yeah. trying to have that level, again, of understanding of each other. And um, and I took a lot from that when Eddie came. Of like, oh, okay, yeah, because I, I think that transcends across the business because we all have 18, 19, 20-year-old women in working in our staff, you know, in sports science teams or whatever. You know, and likewise, we'll have... 50 to 60 year old guys who've been in ticket offs all their life and it's like wow that's generational yeah yeah we need to connect so they're never going to be complete on the same page because i think that's impossible but you know at least to have understanding of okay that's why he sees the world like that okay that's why she sees the world like that that's why she reacts to this adversity like this yeah oh he doesn't seem bothered oh yeah because he's seen it 10 times before just you know so he's more relaxed so um, yeah, again, I think it comes down to people, right, and understanding each other. Yeah, yeah, I I love the way you I love the way you think about it, and 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 a lot of it is is relationships. When I, we talk about resilience a bit, and and obviously my experience on on Everest sort of puts that under the magnifying glass, as you well know. Yeah. Um, and one of the pillars that I talk about a lot for resilience is connectedness. How connected are you to other people? So a lot, of, I, I think a lot of people think of resilience as a bit of an individual thing. Like I'm resilient, I'm tough, I can bounce back, this, that, the other, which, which, which it is. Um, but what allows you to bounce back are many different things. Your, your health, your focus on the future, you know, your mental attitude, um, but also your connectedness to other people. So it's interesting when you said, you know, uh, the bad press, you, you ignore it. 
but you have a group of people that you're connected to that, that you talk to about that that that's helping build resilience in you and the organization by by doing that it's that like that, that connectedness and i i remember very very clearly on everest um half of my connectedness were with people who weren't there right yeah. so you have guides and you have the sherpas and you have the 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 cook and you have the expedition leader and of course you have the team members and also so I felt very I made a big effort to be connected to all of those you know I'd be the person sat in the Sherpa's tent at night having a cup of tea with them where everybody else was hold off you know listening to music or or, or whatever because I, I needed to feel that connectedness but I also felt very strong connectedness to people who weren't there like my parents uh at the time who were like I know they're worrying about me back at home and that actually makes me feel more resilient towards the mountain and being able to do what I do. Um, so I think that, that that those relationships are key, whether those people are on the pitch at the time or not, doesn't matter. That that sense and that feeling is huge for resilience. Yeah. No. Well, let's um, let's pivot into uh, into the climb as I sort of brought up Everest. So. Um, I mentioned this at the at, at, at the the start. I was excited to talk to you, um, not just because of uh, the role that you have, the team that you're that you're leading, but what you're about to about to uh, to attempt. So Everest is on the horizon for spring of 2024. Um, so that's what seven months away. Uh, I know that you leave uh, in four five weeks. Um, to climb Choyoyu, which uh, for for viewers who aren't uh, mountain goers that are watching, this is the sixth highest mountain in the world, and typically a peak that people climb um, to iron out the last few things that they haven't done before climbing Everest, which is usually climbing on fixed ropes and using oxygen, getting above 8,000 meters into the death zone and see how your body reacts. So you got that in a few weeks' time coming up, and you've just come back from Ecuador having climbed uh Chimborazo which is the highest mountain in Ecuador I believe in a a, vol a volcano um which luckily for you hasn't erupted since 550 AD so you were safe uh um, so successful thing so so this and I know it's been a journey for a few years before that mm -hmm. but why because your why is very different to my why my why is I've been a mountaineer for life and I wanted to hit the pinnacle of my mountaineering career by climbing Everest, but, you, but yours is different. So um, why are you doing what you're doing? Yeah, um, oh, yeah, good question. I think, um, I mean, I've always been into, brought up in mid Wales. So I've always brought up in what were very small mountains, but, you know, I'd look out my bedroom window and there'd just be hills and, and outside. And, and I've always been the happiest when I'm outside, to be honest. That's why I spend most of my time at work walking around other people's offices and if I'm meeting people walking around outside having a meeting as opposed to sat in the office I hate this being stuck you know, I'm in my office now just sort of stuck here it's a bit like oof, you know um so um yeah so and then during the COVID lockdown period I looked at I thought Everest was always something I thought oh imagine me not to climb Everest that must be unbelievable and then during the COVID lockdown when we had obviously a bit more time than we would normally because we can travel I actually looked into is it possible for you know, a normal sort of person, because, you know, I've, I've always looked at it as people who climb Everest, it's like, well, these are, these are superhuman guys, you know, and people and, you know, wow, you know, doing that, you must be, you know, so ridiculously fit and mentally strong, et cetera, et cetera. 
all of which is true. But I soon, you know, with a bit of research, people guiding me as to, well, listen, it's a journey to do on it. So I was like, okay, well, let's go on the journey. And, you know, and I started with Kilimanjaro just to go and get experience at altitude, but at a safe sort of, you know, it's not climb, is it? It's, a, it's a, you know, it's like Snowden at altitude is how I explain it to people. Um, Four or five days, it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, as beautiful as it was, but it was great to sort of, you know, okay, altitude's not bad, right? Okay, now let's up the technique a little bit. And, you know, that's when I went and did um, Cotopaxi, Mont Blanc, and it was like, okay, well, you know, quite enjoy this side of it as well being in the snow and the crampons and you know the ropes and you know a little bit of danger a little bit you know some crevasses of okay this is quite exciting as well and that's why yeah I've just continued the journey really with with you know the aim in mind is to is to try and um try and climb Everest and you know I've got one more big climb to do like you say Troy are you in a few weeks and then um and then it's a run into Everest which is which is um yeah, which I'm sort of super excited about because, you know, you train so hard for it, you know, physically and mentally to prepare. You know, it's almost like you just get to the stage, right, I just want to I just want to get on there now and, and, and sort <laughs> yeah. of attempt. Yeah, um, yeah. When's, the next, when's the next one? Do you feel ready? Yeah, I do, actually. Yeah, I do. I feel, I feel like I'm at a good age to do it in terms of I still feel young and fit. You know, I'm, I'm the fittest I've ever been, I think, or certainly since late teens let's say uh, um but i also think i'm mature enough to understand the teamwork element there's going to be periods of suffering um you know there's going to be mental strain there's going to be loneliness all the things which come with climbing mountains even if you only go for a week to ecuador you, you feel these emotions um i feel like i'm mature enough to okay i can deal with them now you know whereas if i would have done it because you you were relatively young i think when you did it were 32 30. yeah it's 32 I probably I was, I, youngest, I was the youngest climber on our team. Uh, in fact, I yeah. was two, and the oldest climber on our team was seventy-two. Yeah, so I think if I, you know, I look back nine or eight years by the time I'm doing it um, to thirty-two, I actually don't think I would have been ready mentally. Um, not necessarily, you know, I've done all the techniques and stuff and been able to get fit enough, but I think I'm in a much better place now than I would have been um, than I would have been then. So yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm excited now, really. You know, it's sort of, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to see, excuse me, um, see what comes of it. Yeah, yeah. And and the, the mental side is, it's probably 50-50 in my experience and certainly on the team that I was on, the number of people that sort of turned around because uh, something something happened up here that that made it switch versus a physical or, or often a health issue. Um, yeah. So, you know, like you said, you're the healthiest you've ever been and um or or since your early teenagers. Um and that was this that was the same for me on Everest. But with maturity also comes pace and you know, mountaineering is a slow, what I call a slow person sport. You know, you're not running up something, there's not a speed test, although some some people treat it as a speed test. Um you know, it's a it, it's a steady away thing, and having the patience to be in that zone for, you know, weeks on end, uh, I could see frustrating people as well. It's just like, you know, some people really struggled with, with with the level of patience and boredom at times. You know, week of bad weather, you're not going anywhere and doing anything, and there's not a lot to do. Um, so again, that connectedness uh, to to people and places is is, is huge. Um, so that's a personal reason for doing it, but I also know that you you are uh, you 
set up a foundation um, and are raising funds for that. Um, so uh, in our last couple of minutes that we've got here, um, you know, just so we can get that pushed out and publicized to people, uh, raising money for what and how do people donate? Yeah, so um, so when I was, you know, decided I was going to do it, so be oh, probably three years ago, yeah. you know, said to my wife, right, you know, I want to go for this. I think I've mapped out a plan of how to attack it and how to prepare for it. If I drop off along the way, no problem. But to be honest, I don't think I will. The mindset is I've seen this goal. Let, let's go after it. Um, and at that stage in my life as well, I was also ready for something else in my life other than just work, 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 work. It's like, I want to have something else to focus on. I want to go to the gym in the morning with a more of a purpose yeah. rather than just keep it. It's like, no, I want to keep fit for something. Um, so my wife was like, okay, yeah. Um, I don't understand, but I understand. Um, and you'll probably know what, what I mean by that. And yeah. um, she says, but if you're going to do it, you may as well, you know, and you're going to risk, put your life in danger. Um do you not think you should do it for, for a course? And I was like, mm, okay, I haven't thought of it like that. Um, and I was like, well, two things. One, there's not a cause that is massively dear to me. You know, there's not, you know, there's not something which has affected me where I'm like, right, bang, I want to go and do that. You know, like, you know, someone lose their brother to cancer or something. It's like, right, I'm doing it for that. And, and I, I, you know, I love that and, and respect that, but I didn't, I don't have something like that which I'm grateful for, obviously. Um, then secondly, I'm not sure I want the added pressure of I'm doing it for this particular person or particular charity. And then, and if it doesn't you know, really help. yeah. Yeah, or it clouds your judgment or it's people going, oh, you need to do this media now. And almost like people start trying it and you're like, I don't want to do that. I want to just concentrate on climbing a mountain and, and, you know, keeping myself alive. Because one thing I've learned, and, and that was a decision before I started climbing, but one thing I've definitely learned since climbing is you don't understand it until you've done it, of actually how hard it is. Yeah. Um, and, and how to manage the risk of it as well. And yeah. 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 You know, and, and yeah. So I'm super glad I made the decision. So what uh, my wife and I decided to do was, well, okay, well, why don't we start up our own um, foundation? for something that we are passionate about um and that is um, educating young people and, and and trying to help young people so and we love norfolk you know which is where we live and which has now become our home it's you know our, our son wasn't born here but he's had you know he moved here before he's one and you know he's now seven so he's had most of his uh you know he classed himself as from here and and um a norwich fan etc so it's like excuse me Let's start something where we can create a legacy where we can actually give back to back to the local community. So we started what we call Summit Foundation, because obviously the, the summit yep. being being there, you know, a, a cool name to come up with. And uh yeah, so we started raising money for that. We're gonna have a big push uh when I announce sort of form officially, sorry, about Choi because I'm also gonna do Choi and I'm gonna try and do Everest Lucy double while I'm there. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to try and we're going to try and market it for one of a better term as you yeah. know three of the biggest three three of the top six peaks in six months sort of challenge um and then yeah and you know we want to try and raise as much money as we can there and then where 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 we do because we haven't got the time or, or more importantly the expertise is you know we can't be out there putting on programs for seven-year-old kids getting into sport but what we can do is we we can fund 
some of the amazing charities that are already existing within Norfolk yeah. who are helping these and have got the expertise. They've got the people on the ground um, to deliver these programmes. Bang, we can put our funding into to them. And then what we want with the foundation after after everything is to continue that legacy and then start doing annual events with yeah. you know an annual people. summit events in different exactly you know we, we did last time we could you could repeat the four peaks that we did the other day Stuart exactly exactly <laughs> you know but like last year we took for example a group of um kids up Snowden yeah. you know yeah. raised a load of money doing that and you know it's got kids out from Norfolk who never seen a, a mountain because it's not their fault there's none here um you know likewise someone maybe a kid in Birmingham's never seen the sea well, why would they? They live in Birmingham. You know, it's a long way away to see from there. So, um, so yeah. So that, that's that's our aim of the charity. We you know we created a podcast called the Decline Podcast, which we've had two series. We'll start a third. We've had some you know amazing guests on there: Rio Ferdinand, Frank Lampard, uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan. You know, sort of people like that. So it's been great. Where you know we've you know sort of been talking about how they dealt with adversity and 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 sort of stuff like that, and trying to relate it to climbing a little bit um so yeah we you know we're having a go you know and we're, we're trying to give back and, and it's something that you know certainly when i finish work um i'll have some more time and energy to dedicate to it which, as well which would be great because you know if there's a period of when i'm not working at least i've got something to keep yeah something to focus on which is important etc love it love it um so will is there is there a website uh summit foundation yeah we've got, we, yeah, we got a website it's the summit foundation dot oh i should know this co.uk or <laughs> that's all right we'll then, we'll have our editor put a ticker along the bottom of the video on this podcast i'll have to get it and then the, we've got um lauren one of our trustees runs the social media on it um and it's at the summit underscore fdn and that's twitter and instagram I believe because um, when we first set it up apparently I was getting loads of abuse off it from Norwich fans and it was funny because it was like I wouldn't even know how to use it um, so I think <laughs> oh, it was somebody else stuff out. That, yeah it was someone else who was just deleting them and not me um, oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it couldn't quite work out that yeah this wasn't the place to be abusing someone but there yeah. we go oh, <laughs> Hey, look, we're we're up on time. I I had one more question for you. Do you have time, or oh, should we knock it? Yeah, on? of course. Yeah. Um, so it's the it's the what's next uh, question. Um, uh, you had my wife. She ran in. <laughs> she, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I got to call her on the line. Uh, say, call her on the line. This is Zoe. Where's the paycheck coming from in April? Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I read the most remarkable. Uh, sort of thank you letter from Delia and Michael about you. And what I mean by that is, you know, in, in this world, you can, uh, we, we read them all the time, right? Thanks for doing a great job. You know, good luck in your next uh, adventure. Um, you know, we'll, we'll be staying in touch. Bang. Yeah. Your, your, your letter that, that they wrote about you uh couldn't have been more different to that in its sincerity and authenticity and uh and even their vulnerability in what they said about you so you you clearly have a tremendous relationship with the two of them um you know 
how did that come about? And then how does that lead you into what what's what's next? Um, you know, after you know March of next year. Yeah, I mean, you're right that you know the letter was incredible, really, and and you know when uh, when I went to see them say I was leaving, you know, I said the one thing I want to protect here is the you know no one slides out the the side door or the back door because you know what we've all done together doesn't deserve that it doesn't deserve me to sneak off and just take another job um the minute i have my notice in and i get an offer and oh i know i said i was going to give you a year's notice but actually i'm off i said i won't do that to you um i said i've got too much respect for you I said, and you know, likewise, all I'd ask is that you know I'm paid the respect that I think I, I think I'm owed. Um, I said, and if there's any comms from the club, all I ask is that the comms come directly from you. Um, whatever you say, I don't really care. I said, if, if it's you know a bit shallow, super deep, or whatever, I said, I'm not worried. I said because I know that you'll pick whatever you think is right, um, and that's enough for me. Um, so when it actually came to the moment of, okay, because this is in March, I had my notice in, and we, we announced it in, I think, June, I think, maybe early June, something like that. Um, you know, the time came of, you know, okay, you know, the comms guys need to get some comments from, from Delia and Michael. And then and then when that letter came through, they actually sent it to my house uh, because they were away. They said, well, we're going to post it to you, um, and you're the only person who can change it. I'm like, okay, so I'm waiting for the post the next day, didn't come. I'm like, reading our comms going, it hasn't turned up yet. What do we second, do? Anyway, second class, second class mail. I, I know, yeah, it came the next day. Um, and yeah, I opened it at home and I was like, wow, okay, that's, yeah. wow, I didn't expect, I expected, I'm not going to lie, I expected to be some nice comments and, and you know, some grateful words, but not to that detail and and, and uh, as like you say showing that vulnerability they did and you know that means the world because it's you know ultimately this football club special but you know I've stayed here as long as I have because of them you know and the people I work with not because of Norwich City or you know the size of the club or whatever absolutely not it's the people I work with every day and them to have been the key driver in okay I'll do another year I'll do another two years. Come on, there's still stuff to be done here because, you know, they've made me, you know, part of the family. Uh, they've made me feel special. They've given me autonomy to do the job. They've backed me in the di real difficult moments, you know, which is when, you know, people get really tested, you know, not when it's easy, but actually when it's tough. Um, I've learned every day from them, you know, so um, incredibly grateful. But what it does, unfortunately, it makes it really hard for the next job you know i thought you know when i left huddersfield we had an owner dean hoyle who i thought i'll never work for an owner as good as this and you know i found two people who were as, as good as dean in, in very different ways but you know and i think i've been so lucky that i've worked with two let's say world-class sort of ownership groups who again it comes back to the people and you know you asked how did that relationship build it built on trust it built on honesty it built on going through tough times together, it came from being vulnerable. You know, I remember sitting in that house after year one, talking through the first year. And I said to him, you might want to sack me after this because I've made so many mistakes. Um, I'm going to talk you through them, but I'm going to talk through the rationale behind them. I'm going to talk through what I've done about it. And I'm going to talk about how I'm going to become better through that. But if at the end of it, you want me to just disappear, I'll disappear because, you know, I wouldn't blame you. 
And I think it's, you know, that's where in them moments, that's where deep trust is built, you know, and, and that's what it is. It's deep trust that they know I'd do nothing to harm their football club, which is like their baby. And I knew that I know they'd do nothing to harm uh, me or any of my staff, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, that's when you have that where, you know, you know what, we've gone through real difficult times, but they've never once turned their back and I've never once turned my back. You know, I think that's what builds that that sort of tight bond. And I know that's lucky. And, I, and I'm also not deluded enough to know that that might not be the case again. You know, my next job might be it's an ownership group of seven people and you're guaranteed you're not going to get on with all seven. There's going to be a couple on there you think, are, you know, not the best particular human beings or whatever. Um, so I'm not deluded on that. And that's what made it a really, really tough decision. Um, but I looked at it and thought, well, I want to do Everest. I feel ready to do Everest or certainly by the time Choi's, Choi's come and gone. It's like, I don't want to do Everest while I'm an employee anywhere. I want to do that where it's a clear mind. Of, mind. I'm Nothing not to worry about. Yeah. I'm not worried about checking my emails. I'm not worried about checking my call. All I have to keep in contact with is a very small circle of people that I love. Yeah. The rest of it can wait. Um, and that's what I wanted to do Everest with. So that's why, you know, when it came to me setting on, I'm going to do it in 2024, it was like, right, let's finish the end of March. I've got two, three weeks at home leading before setting off. Uh, and then off you go, clear ahead, hopefully be successful in terms of, you know, coming back healthy and then, right, what's next? Um, and the beautiful thing is, you know, about spending an inordinate amount of time in a tent or walking slowly in one direction is a great time to reflect and think and 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 learn as as, as you go. I, I, you know, I found those moments fabulous, just the, the breathing and the pace and the rhythm that you get into kind of frees the mind to to wander and to think and to dream and to do all sorts of stuff. That's what I part of what I love about mountaineering, you know, uh, it enables you to do that for an extended like, period of time, not like half a day or a week or whatever. Like it is yeah. an extended period of time. Yeah. And every climb I've ever come back from, I come back feeling a better person, feeling renewed, feeling fresh, feeling like there's new ideas um and i'm super excited to do that not having actually anything in my head from a mundane day-to-day -day point of view of oh god as soon as i've got to get back i've got to sort that contract for that player i've got to do this or i've got to deal with this staff member it's been able to come back going oh okay i'm actually back fresh ready to plan the next what i think is the second stage of my working career because i'm going to be 40 hopefully get everest done and it's like right I'm seeing it as oh brilliant. Here's the second half of my yeah. work career. And then um and I'm sort of super excited to have that time to really reflect and think and even come back. You know, I want to come back and I want to come back a, not a different person, but that's that's still there's something nagging at me that ah, I can still do this way better somewhere and I can still be a much better version of 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 the person I am, having had that last 20 years block of that. And I want to have that time to really just undo all of that and yeah. really back to moments where God, I remember when I acted like that why did I do that that's a bit of a dick there and you know how am I going to deal with that next time and what, what's the what's the best version of me next time going to do and I think that's where I'm super looking forward to having that time on the mountain as well alone where yeah I can start to unpack that and take notes and right I need to think about that when I get back and, and stuff I'm, I'm yeah and that 
And that will happen. People, I remember when I came back, people say, how's it changed you? You know, I got two questions when I came back. How's it changed you? And uh, what are you going to do next? <laughs> Which is the worst question ever. It's like, yeah, my, yeah. my answer to that was actually, I, I'm I'm going uh, to fall in love and get married and start a family. Um, yeah. And I wasn't seeing anybody at the time. It's like, okay, then my next challenge is, is going to be that. And I, again, I was 32. Um but it but it does it, it it does change you it can't it, it can't not and it's not just it as in everest uh, Troyoyo will be the same um and that and the journey is 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 part is part of that for me it's very different i was different stage of my career i i you can see uh, it's funny i look back over the financial results of the organization i was running and it was steady until from 2001 to 2005 and then i climbed everest and then and then it went like that and carried on going going like that for many many years um so you you know it was definitely a pivotal part of my life um from a from a confidence standpoint again i was i was a bit younger and in a slightly different role um in in sort of re- relating to other people and seeing what what you know you had achieved I, and i would never tell anybody i would never lead with anything a lot of my friends are like yeah man you need a t-shirt you know that says I just climb up. Right away. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit too modest for that kind of stuff. Um, but it, it gives you an. Uh, for me, it gave me an air of something that clearly helped me in my in my life and my career. And a year later, I met my wife, and we had four kids. And you know, the the challenges are very different now. Um, so you will, like you said, just really interesting. You said I don't know what it is yet, but there's something there. Um, that that will become clear within about two weeks of returning from home it might not become clear on the moment but definitely when you get back um th- th- that sort of world will open up for sure fantastic uh uh I, I want to come with you um i'm <laughs> making me feel feeling uh, feeling jealous uh for, for for the whole for the whole thing um excellent Stuart. um i'm gonna sign off uh, uh, officially we'll uh, be putting this podcast out uh, sometime soon but thanks for everything pleasure thanks for having me guys